0: Welcome to High Impact Growth, a podcast from Damagi about the role of technology in creating a world where everyone has access to the services they need to thrive. I'm Amy Vaccaro, Senior Director of Marketing at Damagi. Today we have a very special health worker as a guest, Margaret Odera. Margaret's a community health worker, a mentor mother, leader of the Community Health Workers Champions Network, and a true force of nature. Margaret and I first connected on LinkedIn, and I've since joined the advisory board for her organization. And since then, I've been continually impressed and inspired by her. For today's conversation, we had technical difficulties with the first version of the recording, so we were not able to publish that first one, which my co-host, Jonathan Jackson, joined for. So Margaret and I ended up recording just she and I. Today's conversation is a heartbreaking and unvarnished look at life as a community health worker in Kenya. We discuss Margaret's journey, what a typical week looks like for her, her work to launch a National Association of Community Health Workers in Kenya, and the aha that sparked that idea, the need to pay community health workers, and the role of technology in supporting her work. I will ask you to listen to the full conversation. So often we see short, pithy quotes on social media from community health workers, but I'm guessing that many of us may not have heard at length from a community health worker, and Margaret has a lot to say that we all need to hear. Just the act of listening to her story is an important part of the healing process that's needed. Before we jump in, one note on today's conversation. You're going to hear the term mentor mothers. These are women like Margaret who are HIV positive and who serve as peer counselors for the prevention of mother-to-child transmission of HIV. You'll also hear a mention of the World Health Assembly, which is the decision-making body of the World Health Organization and occurred at the end of May 2023. Margaret attended the World Health Assembly, and we recorded this conversation shortly before she left, and it'll be published in the days following the event. Enjoy. All right. Welcome to the podcast. I am here today with Margaret O'Dara, who is an incredibly inspiring community health worker and advocate and activist who I've been following for A couple of years now, and really, really excited to have you on the podcast, Margaret. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much, Amy. I'm also glad to be here. Thank you.
0: So, Margaret, I'd love to hear a bit about your story and how you came to community health work.
1: Okay. It was back 13 years, 13 to 14 years ago when I became a community health worker by default. I did not plan to be a community health worker. But I have a story. It was it was a it was a, a phase that I passed through uh, from being diagnosed uh, with HIV, and then I went to be prayed for. I was not healed. I come from a community that it's so religious. We have different religion, and people really believe in prayers and witchcraft and you know demonic things. So I went through that, and unfortunately, did not get healed. As days went by, I became pregnant and, and I now decided I was forced now because I was pregnant to go to the antenatal clinic in the hospital. And when I went there, now I had to be tested again. And now this sad reality again hit me that I was, I was positive of HIV. And I was given a mentor mother to just mentor me and just take me through the process. And this was very, very difficult. I was in still in denial, but when I got pregnant and I had to get the the antenatal book and and you know just to be registered in the government, I had to work in a government hospital. And in the process, we started again, you know, testing, counseling. And I remember that this meant a mother called Doralex really had a rough time with me. Because I never wanted her to know even where I stayed. So I gave her wrong names. I gave her wrong addresses. Yeah, and everything was just, you know, wrong about myself. I used to lie a lot because I never wanted anybody to identify me. Anybody who knew me, I could avoid. Even in the hospital, when I was coming for the antenatal, going to take the drugs. When I saw somebody who is a neighbor, I could even pretend to be taking a call out there and I could disappear. So this mental mother never, she never gave up on me. She followed me up and fortunately or unfortunately she came to know where I was staying and along the way, just during that process, I was initiated to a support group, a support group that was, you know, was just uh, bringing the HIV positive pregnant and lactating mothers together. And we could just share, we could just talk. And in the process, the Catholic Medical Mission Board, one day they came to the hospital to just pay a visit and they asked us questions and they came to the support group and saw what we were doing. And in that process, the time that they identified me, we were so many, but we were, we were taken five of us to Colping Vocational Training Center, which is outside Nairobi. And when we were taken, it was a training process. It was a process of just like a a process of healing, a process of refining yourself, readjusting and just redefining who you really are. And this process was so intense and it was so defining. I cannot forget that process up to this moment. And because it was far away from home, it was somewhere in a lonely place. And it really helped me a lot to heal and also gave us intense training on mentorship. On how to mentor a HIV positive pregnant and and lactating mother so that at the end of the day, we will find, we will see HIV free 18 month old baby. So that is how I became a community health worker. After being trained, we were redeployed back to the hospital now to go to the community and identify ourselves with this mother so that we may
0: have. Uh, eradication of mother-to-child transmission of HIV. Thank you so much, Margaret. What a powerful story and what incredible perseverance on the side of that mentor mother. And so I'm curious to hear a bit about what does your day-to-day look like now as a both a community health worker and as a m- mentor mother?
1: Okay. In day-to-day lives, I start my daily routine duty inside the hospital in the morning, I start by going straight to the antenatal clinic and do the morning health talk. We just talk to these women. I train them on danger signs and birth plan, you know. To what to do when you see danger signs as a pregnant woman? The telephone numbers of a community health worker who is close to you to where you are staying because they come from different places. Most of the mothers have not yet gotten rid of that stigma because even me, when I was pregnant, I used to stay in another, a different community. I used to stay in Huruma, but I decided I'm going to go for my auntie at all in Mathare because I never wanted people to know me. So most of the women are undergoing the same. So some of them come from far, some come from just within my community. After giving a health talk for 30 minutes at the antenatal clinic, I take, I do one-on-one. I just take their their addresses so that afterwards they will tell me when they are free, the day that they can be free so that I can visit them at home. Then another 30 minutes, I go to the postnatal. The mothers and the small babies who have come for immunization from two weeks to 18 months, I do health talk on each and every day has got its own different topic. Like maybe on a Monday, I might teach on family planning. On Tuesday, I might teach on exclusive breastfeeding. On Wednesday, I might teach on COVID or malaria. On Thursday, I might teach on safe motherhood. We have different topics for mothers, depending on the urgency of time. Like there is a time that maybe there is a polio outbreak, so we spend that week teaching mothers about polio or teaching mothers about cholera when there is an outbreak. So so it depends on the urgency of uh, what I'm going to teach. Yeah, so after there, I go to, on Wednesdays is the time I go to the labor ward and just stay with the mother and child. Then on Thursday, I go to the CCC Comprehensive Care Clinic. That's the time I talk with the HIV positive uh, people who are taking drugs and making sure that I get their addresses. I get where they stay or their telephone numbers. Then that is in the morning hour before I leave the facility, I have to make sure I have gone to inside the every room, the antenatal room. I look for defaulters. Maybe there is an antenatal who defaulted. She came with a three month old pregnancy, but she did not come for the return date when she needed to return. So I have to identify each and every room. Is there a baby who did not come and was supposed to come? Is there a baby who missed the immunization? How do I look for this? Maybe there has been a violence at home and this mother has run away from that place or something happened. So I have to go to each and every room to see if there is any defaulter, especially in the TB room and in the comprehensive care room, so that there should not be any defaulter there who has missed drugs or they have missed the appointment. So I take those lists with me and their telephone numbers and their addresses, wherever they are. From 10 to 3, I am out in the houses, going to one-on-one, visiting houses, looking for mothers who have newborns because at the labor ward and at the newborn unit, there are mothers who gave birth and after 24 hours, they are released to go home. So I make sure that I follow them within that 72 hours after the baby is born to just go see, is this baby okay? Does she has temperature? Is there a problem? Is the umbilical cord healing well and all that stuff? Is the mother breastfeeding well? Is she sick? Is she eating properly? Yeah. So uh, stuffs like that. Th- those maybe who are HIV positive, they have no drugs. I just go provide the drugs. But. All these routines might, can be interrupted by the agency. Sometimes it can be on a Tuesday or on a Monday. And there is a mother maybe who is HIV positive, had defaulted and now is in labor. She has come to give birth. And she has mm. been maybe denying her status. Maybe she didn't even come with the antenatal book because she knows that, that when they look at that book, they will know that she is HIV positive and she's still in denial. So if a mother comes during labor without the antenatal book, that is a sign that maybe she is hiding something or she knows her status and she doesn't want to talk about it and that puts the child in danger. So in that, in those cases, I will be called back the labor ward or if maybe there is a shortage of, of subordinate staffs, a shortage of maybe they're called the assistants in clinic. I will be there. Maybe I can be there even for three days for a week until that person comes because I am I have an experience as an assistant in clinic inside the labor ward.
0: Wow, Margaret, that's sounds like such an exhausting and full week, you know, really working between the facilities and the clinics and then finding and following up with people in their homes. And it sounds like you've got a really strong focus on mothers who are HIV positive and trying to do what that mentor mother did for you, right, which is make sure to keep following up with them and ensure that they're being safe and preventing that transmission of HIV from mother to child. And so as you're describing this, Margaret, I'm feeling exhausted for you. It's a lot of work. And I want to talk to you about payment. And I know this is something you advocate for. Have you been paid for your work over the last decade of being a community health worker? How does that work?
1: Okay, being a mentor mother, I had a contract. It was a 3 years contract with Afia Dijini. That one, I was being paid as a mentor mother. But as a community health worker, there was no single day that we were paid. It was like a unpaid work. It is unpaid work. And it is very unfortunate because 70% of the community health workers there are women. And when I feel good, You know, when I feel so satisfied, seeing a five-year-old child, HIV-free and very healthy, and that becomes a satisfaction for me because I have taken care of this child with passion. But it is so unfortunate that the health fraternity is taking advantage of this compassion that the mother has. To tell this, this community health worker that only God can pay you, that is an emotional blackmail. It is. Because taking advantage of that passion that a mother has to see that the children, to see that the society and the community is living right, is living healthy and without paying this, this women, I think that is not right because that is taking an advantage of a compassionate mother. You see like, and that also I can call it a corporate injustice against women. It is because. You cannot work as a volunteer for a hundred years. And it is so interesting that a fraternity, a whole cadre like a health fraternity, having this woman who has stayed as a community health worker for a hundred years without any change, but, and they don't even mind professionalizing this mother, paying this woman who has a family, who has children, to, who depends on her, I mean, on my side, I find it very unacceptable, both as an injustice and also it is an emotional blackmail. To praise somebody, telling somebody how good that person is, but you don't appreciate that person. You don't think about the mental state of that person when it comes to needs of their children.
0: It is It is really appalling, Margaret. And that line of only God can pay a mother for her work, it makes no sense to me. And it's really, it's really infuriating. And I'm amazed that you even stick with it. And I know that one of the things that you've been really working on has been bringing community health workers together to advocate for CHWs and improving treatment. And I want to hear a bit about that journey that you've been on, starting the Community Health yes. Workers Champions Network.
1: Okay, in 2020, I went to Bangkok, Thailand, for the Prince Mahidol Awards Conference. And I went there not as a community health worker, but a mentor mother to tell my journey and my story on HIV. When I went there, one of the interesting topics that were being discussed there with the leaders in health was a community health worker. When I was given time to speak and I said, so I talk about it. I I spoke about it. And somebody, the audience, a doctor, a certain doctor asked, who is this community health worker? Where are their names? Because we never even appeared in the list. Even in the list, even in the Kenyan list, there was nothing that showed us. that this is the number of community health workers that we have. And from 2020, that is, what, that is how now a master list was, started being introduced. And I felt in my heart that we are so scattered. We are so scattered and we have been put in that cocoon and in that mode by design. The health fraternity has done that by design so that we will be so scattered and so not knowing each other and not, and we will remain there forever. Nobody will even listen to you because you are not even together. Are you talking on the behalf of community health workers? Who are they? Do they know even you are talking on their behalf? Maybe they even don't know. So I came to to think that community health workers have been staying for for a long time in such a state with applause being applauded. You know, the work has been felt, but we have been invisible. Because we are not together, we are scattered. And when I came back to Nairobi, I decided to call, uh, my fellow community health workers and just tell them what I saw in Thailand. And I told them that this is a very, very serious moment because nobody will speak on our behalf. If we don't speak on our behalf, nobody will do it. Nobody will stand on our behalf if we don't stand for ourselves. Because I think that is the reason we have been staying like this for such a long time. Because we are not even together. So uh, I decided to start it on the cheapest way possible, like setting up a WhatsApp group. And with the help of people from Dimagi, like you, Amy, we had uh, IntraHealth International, people like Carol Bells. We had Vince Blesser from Sabine Vaccine Institute. So I had made friends from bank, from Thailand. And I also made friends from the LinkedIn uh, platform. And I thought, these people are friends of community health workers. They have the, the welfare of the community health workers at heart. So I decided to bring them on board so that they will give me one or two advice, the professional advice that they have. Yeah, so we started like that. And, and the five of us, each and every one of us had a mandate to bring community health workers on board. So they, uh, we we decided to tell other community health workers and those other community health workers to tell other community health workers. So it was tell a friend to tell a friend to tell another friend. And we grew from five. We are now more than 6,000 community health workers spread in seven counties. So in the process, I thought that uh, uh, CHWCN is just a, you know, it's a CBO, it's limited. And I cannot reach the whole country when we are only CWCN, and unless I have to change it from the CBO, the community-based organization, to the national organization now, which I'm also planning to do. It's in my mind. And in the process, I met Dr. Madeleine Ballard, who gave me an idea of starting a national association, which was, I think it was very, very important so that we reach the whole country. And right now, we are 9,000 community health workers out of 42 out of 47 counties are in the national association, including the CHWCN. Uh, We don't have the certificate yet. We have applied in the registrar of societies and are in the process of waiting for the certificate. We should be getting that certificate at the end of this month of May. So that is how... Community health workers also came to know that they have to advocate for themselves. I also included leaders who are in the Ministry of Health. Some of them were for the idea. Some of them were very much against the idea because when they came on board, maybe they thought it was just a welfare uh, network, something just to like, uh, we do income generating activity, you know, this, this normal thing. But they never knew that we are going to face this challenge of pay, professionalization, institutionalization, and protection, and also being recognized. We want to face it head on now with them. And the tension was so high. Some of them, the leaders left the group and some of the the community health workers also were so afraid because they thought that I was now, I am taking a very dangerous turn. And it reached a point that I knew very well that it's a point of no return, as I have already exposed myself to it, and I cannot apologize. So I stood there just waiting for what will happen to me. And in the process, I had already rooted myself on Twitter, rooted myself in LinkedIn. I had already gone to Thailand and made some friends. So that state of being rooted with the people, organizations, and also People who just support the idea of professionalizing community health workers had already uh, gone deep, so I could not stop. And uh, I'm so glad that these leaders are now seeing the importance of community health workers even speaking on their behalf. Because right now, the government has started giving a small token, which is way back, too little, too less even for us. For somebody to survive on it is around $25. It's very little or no pay at all. That is in Nairobi County. There are some counties that get nothing, completely nothing up to this moment. And that is why it was so important to have a national association so that these counties will know that Nairobi is getting $25 a month. We need to be together so that the language that a community health worker in Nairobi is speaking is the same language that a community health worker in Samburu will be speaking. And I really, am really, really impressed because community health workers have come out to be together. We have decided we are going to be together. Yes. And uh, the first thing that I spoke about was the name Community Health Volunteer. And there was a big argument even in the platform of CHWCN. One of the, uh, the leaders was saying we are volunteers and we cannot change our names. And... Even with a certificate of CHWCN, that leader never wanted that name CHW. And she told me if we are calling ourselves CHW Champions Network, she is not there. Let's call ourselves CHV Champions Network. But we decided to keep we didn't even answer her. We decided to apply for in the Ministry of Social Protection like that. And they accepted us like that. And they gave us the certificate with the name Community Health Workers Champions Network. And it didn't go well with this particular leader. And we started from there now. We cannot be called community health volunteers because it was not our name from the beginning. The WHO gave us community health workers. That was our name, but somebody knew that this day will come. That is why that person decided to go to court to force the name volunteers on us so that we we will not complain so that our mouths are are just going to be shut. But this has not worked. When we went to Liberia last, it was in March this year. One of the leaders, when we came back, confessed that he was very, very much ashamed because Kenya is the only country that calls CHWs Community Health Volunteers. And the name was changed immediately. Now we are called Community Health Promoters. And I think we are moving, though we are moving slowly, but
0: we are heading somewhere. Wow, that's amazing. And it sounds like those are two good steps in the right direction. Of course, you want to see a lot more, but being able to kind of move from absolutely zero pay to a $25 per month stipend is something. And then also just this change of language. And they had been calling community health workers in Kenya community health volunteers, which just sort of makes you live with that status of being a volunteer as part of the name, which is just so, so absurd. So that's really promising to hear.
1: Even surprisingly, in the symposiums like this, CHW symposiums and on all the, the uh, things that were having community health workers on board, there was no community health worker that, w- that was being represented there. So the organizers in the symposium in Liberia said that there is no country that is going to come to the symposium if there is no community health workers that are represented there. So it's like they were forced to bring us on board. And that's a good thing because I think when we are doing this advocacy and people are listening and the the health fraternity is seeing this gap, the health fraternity has started seeing that there are those huge, serious gaps at the basement and they are doing something about it. Yeah. Because you cannot discuss about someone, You, you cannot shave my head in my absence. I mean, you cannot discuss about a community health worker. The community health worker is not there. She doesn't even have, has a, a platform even to, to say about her challenges. So it has been a, a battle that I know that we are going to win at the end of the day.
0: And so, Margaret, what's what's next for this national association that you're pulling together and for the Community Health Workers Champions Network?
1: Okay, what I am thinking, after getting this certificate, I want us to join with other organizations. I want us to partner with organizations that can help us even to do things like to professionalize ourselves, to be institutionalized, because I know that we cannot do it on our own. We have stayed in that cocoon of being unprofessionalized for a very long time. And there are things that we don't know up to this moment. There are things that we are yet to learn. And I think it's good to start working by ourselves. If we get organizations like Dimagi who are doing technology, they can teach us and train us and help us even to do technology. And if we have this certificate, you know, we can partner with organizations, even like the World Health Organization, and they can help us walk this path so that we may, our standard, we may reach the standards of other health workers. Because we also submit reports just like every other health workers. The only thing we don't do is getting the salary. When the he- other health workers go to the banks smiling, we don't go to the banks. And then another thing, it will also be justice to women. If the, the National Association will partner with the women in global health, who are fighting for the w- women's rights, and who even nominated me as a hero of health in the year 2020, 2022, so they are our friends. These are our friends. So if I get a women in global health to be our friend, if I get demag People have different abilities in different organizations. So if these organizations are going to help us and become one so that we may go, we may build the health workforce back better as a unit, because right now we have been isolated and just put aside for a a long time. Yeah. Even when community health workers have something like a symposium or a conference, it's those leaders who will go. But right now, for the first time ever, ever since a community health workers docket was introduced in this world, for the first time, we have gone to Liberia. That is the time we have been the only and the first time all the community health workers have have come together and seen each other face to face. And I think this is a good turn.
0: And I've seen this in action, Margaret, where you're reaching out and connecting to people and bringing them together. You know, you just mentioned technology, and I want to ask you a bit about technology as, you know, this podcast we look at, what is the role of technology in creating better access to health services and supporting frontline workers? And I want to hear from you, what do you see as technology's role in supporting the work that you do every day?
1: I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but when I imagine of a technology... I think of professionalizing us from using things like our hands to just using digital and so technology. I think it's all we need right now at this century. Technology is what we need in data protection, in data installation, transmitting data, improving from even transmitting data using pen and paper and start transmitting data using even something as simple as a smartphone. We can have all our data in our phones. When I think of technology, I think of it is cheaper. It is faster. I can transmit data from everywhere, anywhere. Right now, as I'm talking to you, I'm using technology. It's like I'm traveling from Nairobi to the U.S. Right now, we are very far from each other, but we are very close from each other because of technology. Technology is the way to go at this moment. That is the fastest way of professionalizing, especially someone who is working in health. So when I think of technology, I think of professionalization. I think of increasing speed. And we are going to do things in a more faster and a more accurate way and a more safer, like a storage. We are going to store all our data in one place, not like the big files and all that. And even the papers can get lost. Most of the time, many years back, files were being lost. Even the certificates, they were lost. The there was a time I lost my KCSE certificate and to get another certificate like that became a problem. But if I just decided if it was upgraded, I just got to the computer and just look at my number, my examination number, and I get that certificate back. So technology is the way to go, according
0: to me. Beautifully said. And I do see you really leveraging technology as as one of your superpowers and that, you know, I've, I see you posting on LinkedIn, on Twitter. i connected with you originally on LinkedIn and we've been able to forge this connection. You're also just incredibly active on WhatsApp and I think you have made it into one of your superpowers. I'm curious, you mentioned, you know, that community health workers um, are not getting paid or they're just getting the stipend, but you're submitting your reports every week, just like every other health worker. Are those in paper or how do those reports work right now?
1: We have a pen and paper. We have a reporting tool that is called MOH 514. That is the monthly reporting tool of a community health worker. That MOH 514 carries each and every category of what you have seen, the number of babies you have seen who are diarrhea, delayed milestones, how many antenatals you have seen, how many postnatals, How many have yellow mark? How many have you seen who are elderly and maybe they have condition? How many deaths did you see? What activities? They are all captured in MOH 514. But now you have to write. You have to write a detailed MOH 514 and you have to do it every end of the month. But I think it could have been easier if I just walk around with my phone and I just take all this information in my phone. At the end of every month, it is so easy, but I am going to the field with my book and with my pen and I write all this in inside my diary. And then at the end of the month, I will take that MOH 514 because I don't want to go within the households, and it will even get old or it will tear up even before the end of the month. So this book, I will have to transfer all this data using pen and paper and fill that that template that is called MOH 514. And I think if this MOH 514 is, you know, translated in a phone or a laptop, work is going to be so easy and even you'll get accurate data. The data will be so accurate. So I always imagine. In Mathare, we are 200 community health workers. Each community health worker must see 33 houses every month. Each community health worker has a hundred households. So every month you have to submit a report of 33 houses. And this, all this data, we are going to submit it to one supervisor. The 200 papers are going to be submitted to one supervisor. This supervisor is going to put all this data in the system one by one. You see now that is a lot of work, but this pen and paper does not, the data won't be accurate. Will not give the person who receives that data to put in the national system all the 8,000 papers being transmitted, being taken to the main hall to go and being now so that they may inform policy decision. They start checking each and every paper one by one so that they may enter it in the system in data. I think it's not right. It's a hell of work. And it will also help each and everyone. The supervisor will have easy time when we transmit it through phone. If I have my own data in my phone, it will give me even easy time to know what happened yesterday and, and refine it to tomorrow. And, you know, it will give the history today and tomorrow just in a phone because that memory is very, very much accurate.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And just hearing you describe the incredible burden of paperwork there, and also you you lose the ability to sort of understand what's happening in real time because you're just getting that data on a monthly basis and then having to. Manually compile it. It's not even safe for
1: that person to have those papers, one plate and looking at it one by one. It's not even safe hygienically for that person.
0: Right. Absolutely. So, Margaret, in closing here, I'm curious. You said you're going to the World Health Assembly next week in Geneva. What are your top messages for that audience and also for Demagi's audience of technologists and funders and implementers in global health?
1: First of all, I will just thank each and every one of them because they have decided to give a listening ear to a community health worker. And this is a healing process, even to this community health worker mentally. Yeah, just to be heard that is just somebody to listen to us. That is a, a, a very big thank you. We are seeing milestones right now, but we are far, far away behind behind the schedule, behind. We are very much far away, even behind preparing for the next pandemic. How prepared are we right now? Like if pandemic starts and stops in the community and the community health workers up to this moment are in the state that we are today, how prepared are we? Because it will start in the community and stops in the community. That is the fact and that is the reality. So how prepared are you preparing these community health workers for the next pandemic or to prevent the next pandemic? Because a community health worker works on two things, promotive and preventive. The curative is for the doctors and the nurses. So if I am working on promotive and preventive. How have you prepared me? How have you empowered me for this work of promotive and preventive? How are you empowering me? How are you appreciating me? How are you protecting me as the health fraternity? How are you professionalizing me so that I may prepare for the promotive and preventive, even to prevent the pandemic that might come? So how is the health, the global health fraternity? How is it preparing? me? I will just ask this question. How are you preparing a community health worker for the promotive and preventive to prevent the other pandemics to come or in building the global health security? So they can answer that question by saying, we are professionalizing community health workers by paying them. We have already put them on payroll or we have taken them to an intense training of promotive and preventive just the way the mentor mothers were trained. And right now the prevention of mother to child transmission of HIV in Kenya is below 2%. So how have you prepared the community health workers on this? How well trained are the community health worker on promoting and preventing? What will happen when, if this, another pandemic will come, are we going to be the last solution because The other pandemic, when the Global Fraternity was almost on its knees, that is the time they remembered that there is somebody in the bush called the community health worker. And they started giving us quick trainings and sending us in the community. Is that what will happen even with the next pandemic? So my parting shot is just a question. How well equipped is the community health worker to be prepared in the next pandemic to come? Because pandemic starts and stops in the community. And that maybe they are going to digest and see the roadmaps and have a roadmap on how they are going to professionalize, they are going to pay, and they are going to protect the community health worker. Just like any other health worker. We are not asking for too much. We just want to be recognized and to be trained and professionalized, just like any other health worker. That is not too much to ask.
0: Absolutely. And Margaret, I've heard you say once before that, you know, when you're advocating for pay, they say we can't afford to pay. Uh, And I've also heard you say back, well, can you really afford another pandemic? And can you afford to not be prepared? And that's just such a powerful sentiment.
1: Yes. If the health fraternity will say that paying community health workers is too expensive, that's what they are saying. They are saying that they can afford outbreaks, they can afford pandemics, they can afford other expensive diseases that can be prevented in a very cheap way. Yeah. Because statistics have come to know that when you pay this community health worker, a professionalized and a paid community health worker brings back $10 for each and every community health worker. So that is not, it is not a loss. It is a profit even to professionalize this community health worker. Because pandemics like COVID could not have reached where it had reached. Even the doctors themselves started having mental issues, committing suicide, even right under our nose in Kenya. But doctor is being taken to the mental asylum. It could not reach a point a nurse becomes so exhausted and decides to leave her job and just go and do something else. It couldn't have reached there. If this community health worker could have been trained and just not being ignored, this community health worker could have been a very, very big help, even during this pandemic. If they could have been given the first hand training just immediately when they knew that there is COVID, they couldn't have taken the training to the doctors and nurses alone. Because pandemic starts right in the community, not in the hospital, right in the community. So if they could have given us the first priority of just training and prepare us and stand us and professionalize us, this pandemic couldn't have reached where it, was, it had reached. It couldn't. Because we could have started preventing and promoting just from the beginning. And then we also could have been helping in workforce, not giving the nurses and doctors An overwhelming group of people to just cure. If we could have been given the right training at first, every health worker could have been satisfied because nobody could, could have felt overwhelmed by the number of patients. If right now I can treat, I can give a baby simple treatment inside the house before reaching the hospital. Even things like COVID, you could have handled it in the community and things could have been under control. But because people think that we don't need to be paid, we are just like mothers, you know, mothers who take care of their families. And that is very a very expensive joke. Very expensive.
0: Wow. so So well put, Margaret. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been just such an eye-opening conversation, and I'm so excited to share this with our audience and to let them hear your passion and your conviction and It's really contagious. I hope that it goes well next week at the World Health Assembly. And I know also that we'll include in the show notes sort of some links to find out more about your work and also ways that people can support the work that you're doing in terms of making donations to better support you to do the organizing that you're doing.
1: Thank you so much. I also appreciate the fact that I have been here. That listening ear is what each and every community health worker Wants people to hear because applause is not enough, but if you upload in our bank accounts, that applause can be very important to us because yeah, we have been, people have been clapping. We have seen how primary healthcare has been, you know, community health workers have been very important in primary healthcare, but that is not enough. But if you applaud in our bank accounts, if our children are happy, going to school healthy and live, and maybe our conditions of living also is a bit raised and our status quo in the community. Let this community, the community person, as they trust me that I'm one of them, let that, let them see that even the health fraternity cares for their community health worker. Yeah, that will improve even the status quo of the, the health fraternity, even in the community itself.
0: It will be respected. Thank you so much, Margaret. Thank you to Margaret for joining us today and for speaking her truth and doing so despite pushback, even within her own community. In last week's episode, we talked about resilience, and I hope you can see from this episode just how important resilience is for Margaret to be able to do her work as well as continue advocating and organizing community health workers. Margaret's message in this episode comes through loud and clear. It's time that we pay and professionalize community health workers. On the pay side, hearing about a typical week for Margaret was eye-opening and exhausting just thinking about it. And on top of that to think that this is considered volunteer work, it's truly infuriating. Margaret describes the essential health prevention and promotion work that community health workers do and that will be essential for stopping the next pandemic. Government officials may say that we can't afford to pay community health workers, but more than that, we can't afford to be unprepared for another devastating pandemic well-supported community health workers will be essential to stopping the next pandemic where it starts in the community. And on the professionalization side, this looks like dignifying the work with better technology and tools, offering in-depth training and development and recognition. Many of our listeners will know that this is an area that Demangi has invested in deeply with ComCare and is continuing to invest in this year and moving forward, looking at how can we improve the jobs of frontline health workers like Margaret so that they can improve outcomes in their communities. This has been a thread throughout this podcast and will continue to be something we dig into. I will note that Margaret is not a ComCare user currently, but many of the ways that she described how technology can professionalize community health workers are true of ComCare. So if you are looking for tools to professionalize and better support and enable frontline workers like Margaret, please do check out ComCare. And finally, we'll include a link in the show notes to contribute to Margaret's organization should you be inspired to support the incredible work that Margaret is spearheading. That's our show. You heard Margaret say how being listened to is really a key part of the healing process, so please share this episode with someone who needs to hear this. And write to us at podcast at com with any ideas, comments, or feedback. This show is executive produced by myself, Danielle Van Wick is our producer, Brianna DeRoos is our editor, and cover art is by Sudan Chukam.